uh, look at 1 Corinthians, the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, just looking at a few verses, and um, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along with us in the bulletin um, and uh, hear God's word to you because you are his children. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we long for your life, your love, your peace to be present in us as a community. That our love for one another and our love for our neighbors, love for those who are, are different than us and think different than us, would mark our life. And because love is the mark of your life. And so we pray that as we open our hearts and minds to study your word, that you would form love in us that you would teach us of your great love and that you would also give us wisdom so we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth to teach us, to instruct us um, that we may honor you with our minds and our hearts and our actions and we pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord Amen so we are uh, studying a fascinating little passage here in 1 Corinthians 5 um, where the Apostle Paul tells this group of of Christians, uh, Paul had planted a church in the Roman city of Corinth and uh, he spent a year and a half there. And Corinth was uh, was a port city in modern day Greece and as a port city, like many port cities, a very worldly, immoral, it was like commerce center of the Mediterranean world, And what Paul says to these Christians who are living in this very immoral, uh, worldly place is he says to them in this passage that you have no business judging non-Christians living in the world around you. The non-Christians of the world, they're not accountable to you. They owe you nothing. They've never said that they intended to live a certain way. So you have no business judging them. It's an important thing for us uh, to think about as a church, of course, because we're, we're a church that believes that the Bible is the inerrant, authoritative Word of God. And of course, many people in our culture don't believe that, don't see the Bible that way. And so that raises questions for us, is how do we view people that are different than us, and think differently than us, that live differently than us? And um, of course, uh, the church has tended to have two responses to our difference to the world. On the one hand, there, is, there can be a tendency in the church to say, gosh, we're, we don't, the passage says we're not supposed to judge people. We're not supposed to be hard on them. So, uh, 
you know, the church will have a tendency to kind of overly accommodate to the world. We don't want anyone to feel bad. And so the church doesn't look any different than the world. They don't believe anything different than the world. They don't live or act differently than the world. And I'll tell you, actually, over the last century in, in the West, um, the liberal churches have erred in that direction. And as a result, they have been in steep decline. Because there's nothing different about the church in the world. And some will say, why am I going to spend my beautiful Sunday morning in Bellingham at church if it's not any different than the world? Why am I going to go there? There's no, there's no teeth there. But also, there's also another tendency, another error, where the church can become too removed from the world, right? They can get too close to the world, or they can become too removed from the world. And they view the world with um, scorn, and Christians, they have no non-Christian friends. They don't know any non-Christians. And they speak about the world with disgust. And actually, what we're seeing right now is that uh, many churches that view the world that way are also in steep decline in the Western world. And because uh, many conservative churches that have, for generations, had a, a, just enjoyed a consistency that people kept coming, this generation is now saying... They will not put up with it. If you cannot address the concerns of our culture, speak to our culture, connect with our culture in some way, we're not going to be a part of what you're doing. And so both of these tendencies are, have experienced steep decline uh, in, in the last generation. And in this passage, passage, Paul gives us a vision for what he views the church's life to be like and um, what it's supposed to be like in the world. And what I think we find in this passage is that Paul's vision is both very freeing and very challenging at the same time. And he basically tells us these three things. That first of all, we should not judge people in the world. We should not judge non-Christians. People are outside the church. We have no business judging them. Second, though, we should live radically different lives than the world as well. So we don't judge the world, but we live radically different lives. And the key, which is an interesting key, it may be surprising to you, because, this is the third thing, is because God is the only judge. When you view God as the judge, you can live in the tension. Okay? So, and I'll tell you, when, when churches live in this tension of uh, a warmth towards the world... Um, an engagement with the world, and yet live radically different countercultural lives, I think it is very attractive. And people are drawn to Christ in us. So we're going to look at these three things together this morning. So first, we should not judge people in the world. And you see, uh, Paul says this, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. And if you skip down to verse 12, he says again, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Now this actually may be a surprising thing to you that the Bible says this, that Christians are not supposed to be judging non-Christians. Uh, and um, Paul says it's not our business, and actually when you start judging non-Christians, it alienates you from them. So you have no power in their life. And, you know, take this as a very freeing thing, that you don't have to judge non-Christians. I mean, it, the load's off. You don't have a responsibility to do that. I find that very freeing. I have no moral obligation to do that. But the reason why... We should not judge non-Christians. A couple reasons is first, um, he says it's impossible. Um, 
because judging someone means to separate yourselves from them. That's, that's how the Bible talks about it. Is you need to give yourself distance, um, uh, uh, end the relationship with them. And what Paul says is, is that would be impossible because you'd have to go out of the world. You have to interact with the world to live in the world. And this has actually been attempted at many, many times throughout history where religious people have tried to go out of the world. Actually, in the ancient worlds, in the 200 years before the church started, there was a Qumran community. Some of you maybe have heard of the Qumran community, the Essenes, who, uh, who wrote many of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this was a community of Jews who was a very small community, very splinter sect. There was about 200 of them that lived near the Dead Sea and um, not only did they isolate themselves from the world, but any devout Jews who did not become a part of their sect, they tried to isolate themselves from. And, they, and the more they did that, what happens when you isolate yourself from people in the world? More and more you get convinced, we are the sons of light, and they are the sons of darkness. We are the righteous, they are the wicked. We're the ones God's love, they're, they're the ones God hates. And there's this greater and greater divide that happens. And this is not at all what Jesus had in mind for his disciples. Because the second thing is, not only can you not extract yourself from the world, it's actually impossible. But second, if Christians try to separate themselves too much from the world, they can't be salt and light in the world. You can't have an effect on the world. If you've separated yourself, you don't have any friends in, in the world. And I think this is an immensely important thing for us to understand as a congregation, that the Lord intends for us to be around people in the world. To, the, the language the text uses is to associate with people in the world. And, you know, the image that Jesus uses is he says that, uh, that we're like leaven. You know, you put a little bit of leaven into a lump and it kind of slowly permeates the whole lump and the whole lump becomes leavened of bread. And he says that's what Christians are like, is they're, they're placed into different neighborhoods, into workplaces, into neighborhoods, and they have an effect there, a transformative effect just by their presence. And God wants our presence there. And so, um, Paul expects that Christians are going to associate with it says in this passage, sexually immoral people, greedy people, idolaters. Actually, later in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to say that he's expecting that actually Christians are at dinner parties with pagans. This is the whole issue. Like, can you eat the food that was served to you by pagans? What if they offered it to a pagan god? Can you still eat it? And the expectation is you're going to be eating with them. You're going to be friends with them. You're going to be rubbing shoulders with them. And so some of the question that you might have is, how do I do that? If people, you know... My neighbors, the people I co work with, they, they think about the world so differently than I am. They're not Christians. Um, you know, they live in these immoral ways that are hard for me to think about. How do I live with them? Well, I'll tell you, one of the ways that we do that as Christians is the Bible is clear that all human beings have been made in the image of God. And that actually God has given grace to all people. People who don't love him, don't even believe in him, he still shows kindness to you, right? So you might, you know, know have a non-Christian boss who's great to work for. He cares for you well. He teaches you well. You know, it provides a good workplace. Why is he so kind? It's because God has been kind to him and somehow taught him these things. And that's the image of God in him. And so you can say, wow, God is being reflected in this person who doesn't even believe in God. Or you may have, a, you know, a neighbor who's, you know, loves their children or has a great marriage. And, or you might, you know, who, you know, loves to garden and, you know, loves certain kinds of good things that are all marks of the fact that they're made in God's image. And it should be one of 
our regular practices as Christians is to seek to behold the image of God in all people. I want to see God's image in everyone. And I'm going to find it out. I'm going to ask about them. What are their passions? Where has God revealed to them some truth about his world and who he is? I'm going to find those things. I'm going to celebrate them. And I'm going to enjoy them. And when we do that, we find we have all kinds of reasons to associate with people that are different than us. And, um, and the picture that the Bible has is not that the Christians are over here and the non-Christians are over there. It's a blended world. And actually, it's interesting, as you read through 1 Corinthians, it's not just that the Christians are going to dinner parties at the pagan's house, but actually you get to 1 Corinthians 14, and you find out that Paul also envisions that in their worship services, that it's not just going to be Christians there, there's going to be non-Christians there. And if you, if you know 1 Corinthians 14, it's all about speaking in tongues. And Paul says, listen, don't speak in tongues during your worship service, because when the non-Christians come in, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? Why are you talking like that, all the gibberish? And they're going to say, you're out of your mind, and they're going to leave. But if you speak clearly... The non-Christian will come in and the secrets of their hearts will be revealed and they'll fall down and they'll say that God is really among us. And so even in the worship service, Paul envisions a blending of Christians and non-Christians. And this happens when we have a non-judgmental attitude towards those who are outsiders. Okay? Now, I should say this, though, that as we have that kind of relationships, we have relationships with non-Christians, we're Christians... Paul does say in another place that we are the aroma of Christ to God in the world. And so people are going to have different responses to that. There are going to be people, people are either going to be drawn to that and deeply attracted and say, what is that? You know, there's a love in you that I'm attracted to. Or um, they're going to shy away from it. They're going to distance themselves from it. um, And so the reason for this, though, is because it's not only that we have a command to not judge those who are outside, but the second thing is that we should live, sh- uh, Paul says that we should live radically different lives than the world. Even though there's a non-judgmental spirit, there is also a commitment to holiness within the church and as a Christian. You see this here in verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And actually, I talked about this verse a few weeks ago. I gave a sermon on excommunication, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. If you want to hear about that, you go online and, and listen. Um, but, uh, but one of the things is that Paul is saying that there is an ethical demand on God's people and actually, these six things that he lists out, where he's sexually immoral, the greedy, the idolater, those are actually, uh, biblical scholars have said that these are connected to um, six sins that are listed in Deuteronomy that actually receive the death penalty in the Old Testament. And actually, you see that there in verse 13 where it says, purge the evil person from among you. That's a quote from Deuteronomy that is, it's a refrain that comes throughout Deuteronomy when a grievous crime was done in Israel and the result was capital punishment, this was, this was the, the refrain that was used to say to purge the evil from among you. And um, what Paul is saying here is that even though Christians shouldn't go around judging everyone and separating from the world, there is a radical expectation of holiness among the Christian community. And, you know, even in this little list, 
you see how the gospel is actually supposed to touch every part of your life, right? So he first talks about the sin of sexual immorality. What is he saying? My sexual life is not off limits to Jesus. I don't say to Jesus, you know, I'll follow you, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to study the Bible, but my sexual life, don't touch that. Wrong. Jesus says, I want all of you. And something as personal as your sexual life, he says, I am Lord over. And actually, probably living in our culture, this is probably the area that we need God's insight and wisdom and influence, maybe more than any other area, is, is in our sexual life. So we should not be so proud to say, I don't need Jesus to be Lord over my sexual life. And, uh, and, but, but that area, of, it, it doesn't go untouched. Uh, the greedy. He says, our money. Something, our money is something that we think, you know, I work for my money. I'm proud of my money. My money gives me comfort and security. My money gives me a sense of control. And, and, but if you become a Christian, you're saying all of my life belongs to Jesus. And my relationship to my money is going to be radically changed because of my relationship to Jesus. And he talks about idolaters. You know, idolatry is your worship. Like, what is the deep devotion of your heart? What is the things that you're most passionate about, that you give your life to, that you essentially worship, you find your meaning in? Those things are going to be changed too as well if you become a Christian. There is no part of our life that remains untouched. And as Christians, each one of them will be deeply affected by our relationship to Jesus, and each will be deeply affected by our relationship to our community as well. Our life in this church is going to touch all of these areas of our life. And you see that there in verse 12. Paul says, Is it not those inside the church you are to judge? Paul says that um, Paul says uh, the world has no obligations to us. We, you know, we don't judge the world and expect that the world is going to live a certain way. But when we come together, you know, we become members of a church. We realize that we're going to speak into one another's lives, that those are the people that we're going to judge. We're going to judge one another. Now, some of you may read that and say, we're as a church, we're supposed to judge one another? It's like, I thought this was a loving community, and I don't want to be in a church where everyone's judging one another all the time. But I think what we need to see is that that's not what he's talking about. It's not talking about that we're analyzing each other's sins. These are grievous sins. You know, sins that were you know, considered capital crimes in the Old Testament, and, or at least some form of that. And so there are serious sins that we get into that, we, that it is appropriate for one of us to say, hey, listen, you can't live like that. You can't live like that. You can't be a Christian. You can't be a part of this community and act like that. And it's those serious sins where we are, um, live before one another, and we're accountable to each other's judgment. And so God's vision is not that we would isolate ourselves from the world, but that we would live in the world as a different kind of people. And how we relate to people, that we're not condescending, but we're approachable, we're easy to get along with, that we delight in our marriages, that we've, we've found uh, uh, that, that sexuality is, is delightful, in, within the bounds that God has given to us and the instruction that God has given to us. We're generous with our money. We enjoy God's creation, but we don't make an idol out of it. And when all this combination comes together, it's so attractive to the world. The world is looking for a community like this. And, you know, there's a, um, there's a now famous passage in Jeremiah 29 that uh, some of you know, where in Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, 
this in the 6th century BC, or maybe 7th century, uh, the, uh, the southern kingdom in Israel had been taken into exile into Babylon. And uh, as they were brought into Babylon, there was a false prophet named Hananiah who had told all these exiles who'd been brought into Babylon, and Babylon was kind of this immoral, worldly city, you know, pagan, dirty pagan city. And the false prophet Hananiah said, listen, you're just going to be in exile for a couple years, and then God is going to come and smite those dirty pagans. So just hold on, don't associate with them, and he's going to save you soon. And Jeremiah comes, and he says, not so fast. Uh, God's not coming in two or three years. He's coming in 70 years. And so in the meantime... I want you to go into the city of Babylon and I want you to uh, build houses. I want you to have children. I want you to have your children marry one another. I want you to start farms and, you know, businesses. And I want you to seek the welfare. This is, this is what it says exactly, Jeremiah uh, 29, 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And what the Lord says is, I don't want you to separate from the Babylonians. I don't want you to say, oh, they're just dirty Babylonians. I want you to seek God's blessing in their lives and be present in the life of that community, in the life of that city. And when you do so, they will be blessed and you will be blessed. This is the tension that God envisions us as a community to live in here in Bellingham and Whatcom County. How do we strike that tension? How do we not over-accommodate to our culture and become too much like our world How, and not also be isolated from our world and try to say those are the dirtier, moral world we don't want to be a part of? How do we do it? Well, this is the third point we see in this passage is that we must know that God is the only judge. I think that's a surprising answer to how you live this kind of strike this kind of tension is believing that God is the only judge. But this is what Paul says. Look, look at verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Now, you know, I should make a comment here. That word for judges, uh, the word uh, krino, is one of the most important words in 1 Corinthians. Actually, some form of it appears in almost every chapter of the book. And the reason is, if you were uh, here last time, I was mentioning that the big issue in 1 Corinthians was this church had all these divisions and factions among them. And they weren't getting along with each other. They're fighting with one another. And, and so one of the big questions that Paul is talking about is one of your issues in the church is how you judge one another. And you need to have your judgment determined by the gospel. And so uh, some of you may know the famous line that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, where he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the word there for decided is judges, akrina, uh, akrino. And uh, he said, I judged among you to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. The way I judged, the way I lived with you, the way I evaluated myself in, in the community was through the gospel. And um, this is a surprising answer, but the thing that allows you to not judge your neighbor and the thing that demands holiness in your life is to have a robust view of God as the true judge of the world. That's surprising. Lynn, I'll tell you what I mean. Okay, so first, since God is the judge, we're actually free to love all people. 
And I think for many of you, you know, when you hear about that, the Bible says that God is a judge. There's a final judgment coming. God is, brings his wrath on, on the evil of the world. You think that if someone believes in God as a judge, it's going to make them harsh. It's going to make them self-righteous. Actually, the Bible takes the opposite view. And it says that if you're, if you're judgmental of other people or you're coming down on other people, it's actually because you don't have a robust enough view of God as the judge. You're not thinking he's going to judge, so you have to do it. And this is, this is how Paul talks. This is, this is, for example, in Romans 12. This is, what, uh, this is what Paul says. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul has this vision that we are at peace with all people. We get along with all kinds of people. And this is how, why, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Bible actually sees that the way that we can love all people, we can overlook their sins, we don't have to get back at people who mistreat us, is we say God is a judge. He's going to judge them. And he's a better judge than I am. I'm probably a bad judge. I, you know, I have all kinds of self-interest in it. And the more I leave the judging to God, it frees me to actually love and forgive and be patient with people. It's a surprising answer. But, the, you know, actually, the Bible says that that's exactly what Jesus did. In, in uh, 1 Peter, it says that the way that Jesus went to the cross and he suffered for all of our sins was because he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He did not return evil for evil. He did not, uh, you know, uh, revile those who reviled him. And so there's a peaceableness that comes from acknowledging that God is the true judge. It's profound. But the second part of acknowledging that God is the judge is since God is the judge, we must take holiness very seriously. Um, and I have to tell you personally, this is something that I, I don't have resolved in, intellectually in my mind about the Bible. Because one of the Bible, things the Bible says very clearly is that um, on the one hand, the thing that makes our life holy and acceptable to God is not the, things that, the good works that we do, but it's Jesus' holiness on our behalf. That's the thing that makes our life holy and acceptable. But also, the Bible says that every description of final judgment in the New Testament, every description says that we will be judged based on the deeds that we have done in the body. That's what will be evaluated on our final judgment. So which is what Jesus has done or what I've done? And uh, Hebrews 12 says, no one can see God without holiness. And I think intellectually, this is something I don't have resolved, but I'll tell you personally, I regularly find that when I go to the Lord with my sin, he never holds it against me. He is eager to forgive. I also know that he demands of me to strive for holiness as a Christian. For some, for some reason, they're both true. And, you know, it's interesting, actually, on the men's retreat, we just had a men's retreat a few weeks ago. I was talking to Brandon Ellis uh, about this. And he, he had made an observation I'd never seen before, that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has these two descriptions of final judgment. And in one of them, it's these Christians who come uh, to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name and we prophesied in your name and we worked all these many wonders in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. It was the people who were bringing their good works before God. And Jesus says, that's not going to fly, you don't even know me. But there's another description of final judgment in Matthew 25 
where, with the sheep and the goats. And Jesus tells all the righteous, when I was, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I, when I was naked, you clothed me. And I was in prison, you visited me. And what do they say? When did we feed you? When did we visit you? We didn't even know we did that. They weren't even aware that they were doing those good deeds because for one, those good deeds were a gift from God. It wasn't them. It was, God, it was Christ, the Spirit working in them, but also because they were focused on the Lord and they were focused on Jesus and on knowing Him and receiving His grace, the thing that they were so compelled about. We haven't done anything for you. You've done all those things for us. And so it's this picture that in Christ, we can strive for holiness knowing that our good, gifts are a gift, our good works are a gift. And the reason that we do not live in constant terror of this judge is because the Bible tells us that the judge of the world, the true judge of the world, is Jesus himself. The one who would be crucified for our sins is the one who will stand before to give an account. And we know that he was eager to love us. And so we're not in terror that if we love him and we've embraced him, that we can stand before God confidently. But also, we know that this picture, this tension of associating with the sexually immoral, the greedy, the idolaters, and yet living this radically beautiful, different life, it's Jesus who's done that. We look at his life, and he came and he associated with all the people that no one else would associate with, the sinners. And yet, his life was so compelling, so marked with love, and sinless, and so as we abide in him, we become that kind of people. May God work that in us as a community. Let's pray together.